0: This is a special episode of the Immunology Podcast, IUIS 2023, day one. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. As you all know, yesterday launched the start of IUIS 2023, the International Congress of Immunology in Cape Town, South Africa, and Brenda, myself, and the Immunology Podcast team are all attending. Drop by the Immunology Podcast booth, number six in the exhibit hall, to play some games, win a prize, and find out how you could be featured on an episode of the podcast. Today and every day throughout the meeting, we will be releasing special episodes discussing our favorite sessions of the previous day. So if you weren't able to attend, we've got you covered. We're going to kick off things here in just a moment, but before we get to that...
1: Are you looking for smarter and more efficient ways to isolate cells? Well, easy step. Cell separation uh, technology combines the specificity of monoclonal antibodies with the simplicity of a column-free magnetic system, enabling the isolation of highly purified cells from a variety of species and sample sources in as little as 8 minutes. Explore at www.stemcell.com forward slash ECSEP to discover how you can use ECCEP to advance your research and explore our range of ECSEP kits.
0: All right. Well, we got through the first day here, Brenda.
1: Woohoo! That was fun. Well, one and a half. Technically, there was some events yesterday, but it was only the kickstart of the conference. It's good to be in South Africa. It is. Yeah. It's
0: it's Monday, right?
1: Uh, It's Tuesday, my friend.
0: (laughs) It's Tuesday. That's right. It's Tuesday. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tuesday, yes. Monday was yesterday.
1: Monday was yesterday. You're you're getting it. You're getting it. I'm getting there. (laughs) Yeah. So, Very exciting. Uh, Why don't we just jump into? I just want to say, yesterday was the opening ceremony. I thought it was very nice. It was some music, uh, but there also was an opening uh, kind of speech from the president of the IUIs, also a a previous president. And I have to say that was an all-African ensemble uh, that were presenting some, some keynote lectures also. Um, but I coming also, you know, from the global South, I thought it was really nice. Uh, I think it's great that the conference is here in South Africa. Um, and clearly the organizers were also thrilled and they really made that point of, uh, this kind of historic location. What do you think?
0: I thought seeing the history of it and the commitment to being here, apparently for the first time, uh in Africa, it was really neat to see just kind of the, the phase shift and what's going on. And so yeah. it was really cool to see that. Yeah. All right. Well, getting in mm-hmm. to it, uh, what sessions you go to first?
1: Well, this morning we all went to the keynote by Emmanuel Charpentier, Nobel Prize winner, who says she's not an immunologist, but after all, isn't CRISPR a, a immune system for bacteria? So I would say, you know, that that is a partially true, partially false uh, um, sentence, but she of course talked about her important uh, her discoveries in CRISPR and the role her team played. Uh, but I what she ended mentioning, I just want to for all those gene editing fans out there. Uh, last I think it was last week or very recently, uh, the UK approved uh, one of CRISPR Therapeutics, which is this company that uh, Emmanuel Chapentier co-founded uh to harness the 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 power of her uh, her uh, discovery they actually had uh they have a gene editing um therapeutic for sickle cell anemia and they actually got it approved in the uk so i guess other approvals probably will be coming in other countries Uh, i thought i think this is a huge uh, milestone in 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 genetic engineering and i'm pretty sure there's gonna be other also for more immunological uh, diseases big thing
0: my wife works for a uh, gene therapy company as a toxicologist it's moving fast
1: yep yep but then we had sessions so where did you go afterwards
0: so i went to animal models of human immune disease all right it was a it was very uh pork focus a lot of pig going on (laughs) Um, not
1: very kosher was it (laughs) no not
0: kosher at all but it was interesting um Not, I think, a lot of insights to share necessarily here. Uh, It's a a good large animal model, as people know. There's been a lot more work recently interesting. The one thing that came up was the microbiota was really, and specific bacteria are predicting uh, vaccine responses to things like influenza. And so it seems like the host milieu, unsurprisingly, some of that seems, you know, just like we've been talking about in people, also true in swine, which is interesting and thus useful as an animal model. But that was really the only thing I was able to pick up from that first one. How about you?
1: Well, my first session was TB or not, immunity to bacteria. And I thought I really liked it. I mean, I don't have to say that tuberculosis is still a huge burden all over the place. Um, So it was really nice to see some of these talks. Uh, the first session was uh, Joan Flynn, and she showed some results on macaque studies, uh, trying to study factors that prote- protect them tuberculosis, particularly kind of adult onset of tuberculosis. And I thought it was really cool because she showed that uh, although we usually, the BCG vaccine, that it's kind of the only thing we have against tuberculosis for for boosting immunity, it doesn't work very well for adults. So protects to some extent, and usually is in, in administered intradermal. Uh, but in this macaque study, she actually showed that intravenous was much more protective, uh, uh, and uh, than than the other aerosol or uh, intradermal. Um, and she did some characterizations on the importance of CD4s or CD8s, and she showed that uh, the, the, the T cells really. Um, eliminating T cells from vaccinated macaques really uh, increases dissemination. Um, and uh, she characterized some of these responses when you do IV PCG uh, and also um, if you have a, a, a more than one exposure. So she looked into also what happens when you have a, a macaque and you infect the macaque, the macaque is infected, and then what happens if you actually treat that treatment actually reduces the, then the protection for a second. Uh, for a second infection. And this is what I thought was cool, is that they showed a different strain of BCG because IV BCG sounds like a bad idea, like any, you're going to inject, you know, technically BCG is a live bacteria, uh, but they have this doxycycline-dependent uh, uh, strains. So it only, the, if you, you administer the BCG with doxycycline, then the, the, the bacteria is still alive. But as soon as you remove doxycycline, then the bacteria will die.
0: So you still have to administer doxycycline to people. Which is antibiotic and has its own. Yeah. interesting idea. Maybe a
1: different molecule, but I think the idea is kind of cool. Then uh, Emily Wong from the Africa Health Research Institute uh, talked about uh, a study called B- BAKUZASI, which apparently means wake up and know ourselves. And they screened huge amount of people, 18,000 people for TB. And they show that um, actually like 80% of the TB positive patients, like they did sputum analyses and they were te- you know, po- tested positive, were asymptomatic. So there's all these people walking around, they have TB, they don't know it. Um, and she studied a little bit What is what is the spectrum of subclinical TB, and always with the idea of trying to pick it up better, uh, what things we can do to, to pick up these patients. Uh, then Sarah Suleiman, as uh, she was talking, um, she did a GWAS, she was showing some results from a GWAS studies, trying to um, compare individuals who are exposed to TB but did not develop the disease and trying to find the variants that associate with this disease. Turns out it's very hard. Uh, then she combined it with other kinds of studies. Uh, she actually picked up some um, some interesting correlations. Um, and, and I thought what was also really cool was last but not least, Laura Pallet from UCL, uh, University College London. And she was like, I'm sorry, my talk is not about TB. But she had this really cool story about... Uh, CD8 T cells that are uh, resident in liver that they are um, picking up CD14 from myeloid cells around them, and this actually modifies their their their, their phenotype in a very interesting way. So they are like uh, you know snatching uh, CD14 from their from their companions. Uh, pretty cool. Hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah. What does that do?
1: So they sh- it shows that uh, these these uh, T cells. They actually, uh, they have uh, less inhibition by PD-1, seem, they seem to respond stronger to TCR stimulation, and they actually can recognize bacteria, bacteria uh, LPS, and we cannot be activated in a, a t- an absence of TCR stimulation. Uh, and they do this because of this you know, synapses, and then we, I think by now it's pretty well known that T cells, they acquire uh, surface mo- molecules from cells they synapse with. And they are and they she found so they found first in liver but then in other places as well. Interesting. Yep. All
0: right. Well, my next one was on the future scientific publication, and uh,
1: oh boy, boy. Oh yeah,
0: you had some science people there, some nature people there, and some frontier people there. And I'll just say that the conversation was spicy. Can I imagine. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of healthy debate. Uh, about open access and the costs versus what the journals provide behind paywalls and the benefits of that, and what about preprints and peer review. And uh, nothing was solved but lots of feelings were shared. And, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> leave it at that.
1: Oh my. Uh, okay, let me go something much less spicy and controversial. Uh, helmets and antifungal immunity. I mean, uh, you got to get I mean, rid of those. helmets can be
0: pretty spicy. I yeah. mean, it can be a little <laughs> uncomfortable here, folks.
1: Uh, well, <sighs> just quickly, uh, I had a, a, um, a talk by uh, Benjamin Dewals. He was showing uh, that there are some uh, T cells that this kind of self-reactive memory, virtual memory T cells that, you know, they're, they're found. Uh, they can actually respond to IL-4 and upregulate the uh, expression of CD22. And that this uh, uh, kind of gives uh, these cells uh, and uh, pr- provides these cells with some uh, particular um, uh, properties. Uh, so, in, uh, in general, so they, um, seen, they express more CD39, uh, they have increased self reactivity, and they express also effector uh, molecules. And this is an uh, I think this has to do with helminths because it's in uh, response to IL 4. Uh, then uh, I also had. Um, uh, Sh Shubrabat Mukherjee, uh, who was talking about um some surface markers from um I think they're nematodes that cause elephantiasis and how they're so they have some surface sheath proteins that are recognized in 4 um uh and that uh, they they activate the, the immune system in particular ways and they are partly responsible for the uh lymphodema that uh, generates the, the increase the limb um swelling or characteristic of the disease and she, she suggests that because this is an important protein that you can actually try to vaccinate against it or, or 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 inhibit their function in a particular way and that might actually alleviate the, the disease then i had make when she uh talking about uh cryptocoine infection in the brain so Uh, uh, aggressive or aggressive uh, fungal infection and show that there's this uh, population of uh, Lysix C high mononuclear phagocytes that uh, are kind of responsible for clearing out the infection um, and that their recruitment requires TNF-alpha in the brain, expression in the brain, and that their uh, function actually is dependent on different gamma expression and that um that in this also is dependent on uh, ccr2 um and she shows it by doing ccr2 knockouts and showing that this prevents reduction of cfs of uh, colony forming units in the brain of, of this of these fungus. and last uh robert mugo from the free university in berlin and i think it's really cool he uh works all over uh, ascaris infection also a nematode that is uh on the one hand, important for uh, farming, uh, it infects pigs and is can be very detrimental, but also can generate chronic infections in humans. So he was looking into ways of measuring uh, the burden of oscaris of, of and he compared different things like there's I think what is the gold standard probably doesn't make microscopy this is not very high high throughput uh, he compared using qPCR and he also measured humor responses whether you can use antibodies in, in blood to uh, correlate with with infection and he actually found some quite, uh, cool things you can actually you know use qPCR to uh, estimate parasite load but then uh, and you can use certain IgG particularly IgG1 Uh, Against uh, certain uh, antigens that are correlate very well with uh, um, positivity measured by conventional things, so I think it's of course very important in case of you know in endemic areas when you need to do a lot of these tests. Whatever is higher throughput is always good. So really, uh, I had to admit I was not my that was not my first choice of, of session. I was just I was not allowed in the one I wanted to go, but I'm happy because you know sometimes I, I tell myself, you need to get out of your comfort zone. you kind of always go to check out the T cells. you need to see what is there out in the immunological field.
0: Well, I checked out T cells, Brenda.
1: You did. I' a delta T. Oh, those T cells what 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 do you have?
0: All right, so we had three talks that all kind of weave together. One mm-hmm. was by Yi Shi Chien, another one was by Adrian Hayday and a third one by Imo Prinz. mm-hmm. And they all kind of tell the combined story. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the theme, which is gamma delta T cells have weird T cell receptors, which can be restricted to peptides versus very specific epitopes. And so there's some mapping of how some of these pe- uh, peptides or specific marker peptides also had heterogeneous ligand bindings and think it's a psi three specific TCR actually binds a bunch of crap. But then the question is, do you need the TCR for their function or not? And it's been very controversial in the field. I'm not a gamma delta person. I'm been gamma-delta adjacent a bit, and so playing catch up here a little, but high level, um, one person showed that IL-17 responses in some of these cells really require TCR and cytokine receptor engagement. But then they also show that um, at baseline, you don't need a TCR for them that exist, but you do need them for function. And what they found was that they, they need co-stimulators though. And normally there's a normality sensing component to them, so they can baseline have normality sensing. It's like oh yourself all the time. That's part of what the TCRs actually do. And that there's these specific mutations and SNPs they found uh, with mutant alleles linked to IBD where it loses normality sensing, and then they see that that's associated with inflammatory bowel disease, and also just even in healthy people who don't have the disease yet, they have high level higher levels of inflammatory. Genes and such, showing that they're predisposed to inflammation. Um, There's also because of the specifics of how the re- receptor recombination works, you can do where you can make a specific knockout of the TCR only of T uh, delta gamma delta ones, and so they did that and then did it tissue specific and showed that if you knock it out, you have more chromatin accessibility, and they start looking and behaving more like innate lymphoid cells. And then the last person was really showing some more of the mapping of the repertoires and how the, the, these different, like, kind of clustered repertoires affect the function. Because it's not like there's just one single antigen, it's like these clustered effects. So, so that was that talk.
1: All right. What else?
0: What else did I get? I got in some cancer immunotherapy, Brenda.
1: Oh, wait, but before that, while you were, you know, playing around with gamma delta T cells, I was meeting La Crème de la Crème was in a meet and greet with doctors Emmanuel Chapentier and James Allison and uh, organized by the IUIS junior community. So thank you very much for organizing this, guys. Uh, we had a kind of close close uh, quarters uh, meeting with, with them uh, and uh, we just had, you know, we got to talk to ask them some questions. So I just want to uh, share some snippets of of, of, of uh, our, our conversation with, with uh, Dr. Allison and Dr. uh So <laughs> both of them, of course, are the questions. There were some uh, kind of generic questions that were asked by the committee. Uh, you know, what brought you here to science? Uh, and of course, uh, curiosity was uh, heavily cited by both. Um, I like that um, in the case of James Allison, he also mentioned a family history of cancer. That it really motivated him to, to to work on this field. And in the case of Manuel Chapentier, um, she already knew from a kid. Uh, her sister, her oldest sister, was uh, was in university when she was very young already, and that kind of already gave her a path. It's like I want to do what she does, and I want to learn and then teach and then be part of this. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, I guess also another thing that I liked from Manuel Chapentier, um talking about um, distilled uh, learnings. I think one of the things you said and I, and I cannot agree more is um, the importance of being self-reflective, evaluating yourself, and you know, sometimes ignoring whether people say. I think both of them had their uh, situations. Uh, James Allison mentioned how was how hard it was to convince people of doing a clinical trial for those who don't know. He uh, brought to the thera- to the clinic the use of uh, ctla 4 antibodies for for melanoma these uh pilimumab was the first commercial um uh, production and and people he was very uh, clear that people were very skeptical and he had a hard time convincing them to to treat people uh treat patients with this but in the end it turned out to be a game changer and in the case of emmanuel of course um she moved a lot so she worked in many many institutions and she kind of said that she got bored a little bit so she she had a plan how many times how long he was going to stay here and when things were not she was not convinced she she would move on i thought it was a kind of a kick-ass uh, attitude and um yeah it's just the you gotta take the chance uh, uh and risk to follow what you think is good so listen to your what you what you what your gut tells you That's also a words from emmanuel champetier and um, just um, I thought it was it was really good. Um, it was a nice conversation. So thanks again to the uh, junior community. Uh, I hope to be talking about them a little bit more in the next uh, episodes.
0: All right. Well, I am not junior. We've established that I'm old, <laughs> apparently. So uh, I didn't get to do any of those cool things. Uh, but I did go to a cancer immunotherapy talk. Um, a lot of this was some more of a rehash of some greatest hits of cancer immunotherapy work. And so I'm just going to focus on a couple couple things. One was from Nina Bardwaj about how um, they're now going after frameshift antigens for vaccines, including microsatellite instability ones, uh, notably things that mimic Lynch syndrome, which is where you have a lot of, uh, you know, that's the disease with a lot of polyps in the colon or in the small bowel as well. And the idea here is that unlike personalized vaccines for immunotherapy, um, know adjuvants these uh could be commercially produced because that's a common mutation mm. and so it's more commercially viable so that was one little point um and then Tak mock who's done a bunch of work before was really putting out a new case about a high acetylcholine and there's some trials coming out and it's not all out yet but uh the one thing that i'll share that it was pretty cool is that they showed that there's this role of choline acetylcholine and um It dampens PD-1 and CD25, so Tregs, so acetylcholine is pro-killing tumors. And they showed that um, in hepatocellular cancer, patients live 500 days longer if they're in the high acetylcholine group and have better responses to immunotherapy. Okay. 500 days is quite a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so that's one of the areas to look at. And then he's doing a lot of work looking at using metabolite disruptions to kind of have a phase shift and solid tumors. As we know, immunotherapies aren't particularly successful lately uh, outside of liquid tumors. And melanoma is kind of uh, a liquid tumor.
1: Mm, oh, it's, it's, I mean, mel-
0: melanoma is considered a liquid tumor.
1: Well, but there's been some—I uh, would say—colorectal uh, cancer uh, only
0: microsatellite instability well, high, so like which is very rare. So it's like in most of it that it, you don't you don't have huge responses in a lot of solid tumors. And so what they're finding is, you know, just on its own, it's not working. So mm-hmm. is there either biomarkers and metabolism, or are there anti? Uh, me- metabolic pathways that they can go after with small molecules that will then potentiate the effect of the immune response because there's this tumor microenvironment that seems to be metabolically sustaining them even in the face of immune therapy. Mm -hmm. And so can you disrupt that? And I think that's the difference is liquid tumors because they're so disseminated, don't have that microenvironment in the same way, right? Your blood is your entire bloodstream. Melanoma is pretty liquid and disseminates everywhere. It's kind of a unique uh cancer and so that's what they're really pushing on and so they're usually hoping that these that this is how they can get to some solid tumors
1: i just want to say that be- before the meet and greet with uh manuel chamadier and james allison james Addison had also gave a keynote lecture which is also very interesting um and i think he also made the point of sometimes um combining immunotherapies and combining uh combining uh, approaches are it can be very important So, the last session of the day I attended was systems immunology. It was chaired by Mark Davis, you know, former guest at the show. Um, And he really is into, no, I think lately he's been pivoting a lot towards uh, kind of um, trying to compare or like uh, look into human uh, immunology, uh, because mouse is always hard to to, to translate. And, he has been developing uh using organoids and particularly those derived from tonsils and apparently also from spleen um and so this kind of self-assembly single cell organoids apparently you can kind of they will you can kind of reassemble them from single cell and he has used them to study um on the one hand influ- influenza vaccination uh looking around the idea of the original antigenic sin this idea that uh the first influence that you are um, you are subjected to might kind of condition the other influences uh, responses, and he showed uh, there were some uh, studies using twins that suggest that actually it's not so much the initial flu exposure, but it's more than the genetics and the HLA presentation and the HLA repertoire that you have and how good it is at presenting certain peptides over others. So he suggests so he used this. Stones organoid system to compare different uh, vac- vaccine approaches. So uh, showing that it's cross-linking antigens from different uh, hemagglutinin uh, subtypes in one one molecule actually prevented this uh, disparity in the immune response. Because if you, if it's, it's, she showed that it's better to have all the antigens in one big ball, so to say, than having uh, individual vaccinations with all the antigens. Because by themselves, some antigens are better. Are kind of been presented and activating T cells. But if you have these dominant antigens on the same dendritic cell, that dendritic cell would get CD4 help and then be better at presenting all of the antigens, including those that are weaker. And so this actually can give you a much more uh, balanced immune response also against antigens that you would be kind of predisposed to be worse at presenting and, and at generating uh, immune responses against. Um, He was also looking into also tonsin organoids for studying uh cd8 uh uh, suppressive t cells uh, that are expressed uh, uh, in mice express like 49 and i don't remember uh, what was the marker for in humans Uh, but these are also uh, Tcda t cells that are actually going kind to of have an overall suppressive uh, function and and he also showed that you know tonsil organoids and, and skin co-cultures to study rejection in vitro uh and the fact that now they're doing organoids from human spleens uh, i thought it was pretty cool so i really like that i, I need to look closer into that because is this whole idea that i think what he's trying to say is how can we study the human uh, how can we generate models that for studying properly, more properly, uh, the human system uh, instead of having to only rely on mouse. And then we have Sarah Teichmann from Welcome Zanger Institute, uh, who is apparently on a quest to map, uh, make an atlas of every kind of tissue and its immune cells. Uh, So he has some very, uh, very sophisticated uh, models for, for, for kind of modeling space and time. And he was particularly showing some data on thymus. Uh, he got a hand on a lot of thymus uh, thymie from different ages, from uh, kind of really, uh, uh, I think it was prenatal and kind of infant uh, thymus. And she used these with some very fancy measures, you know, spatial transcriptomics to make a model or to kind of, generate a model of thymus and thymus de- development, which was pretty cool. Uh, and he apparently, her lab does this with many other organs. Uh, so she did seem to be on a mission here. Very, very, very um, impressive. And last, I really like the doc from Peter Brodin that he's at Karolinska and also I think somewhere in London. Well, he's looking into different sex differences in human immune responses, of course, we all know and he showed some data that was really cool from COVID responses, how males uh, did pretty in general worse than females and this in principle was characterized by a reduced interferon type one response that then uh, in the end, it ended up being a more stronger inflammatory response with IL-6 and more kind of damaging response.
0: Are, are you saying the man flu is again, yet again, Established as true.
1: Bah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I,
0: at worst,
1: you weak men. You weak men. Man, man yeah. flu. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's he, that. Again, that that's, that's the interpretation you could do. Uh, so what he did. So it's always hard. What is genetics? What is hormones? Right. And so what he did, he studied, uh, people transitioning d- doing gender affirmation care with a testosterone treatment. Ah. So, I thought that was brilliant. Then you have and
0: and the chromosomes won out.
1: The chromosomes, so they, you don't have to, they, those; those don't change. Yep. Uh, so she showed that after one year of of, of gender affirming testosterone therapy, this patient's they show kind of this shift from uh, uh, towards a, a decrease in the type 1 interferon response towards an increase in the TNF-alpha and inflammatory uh, cytokine responses. Uh, and he showed some uh, s- uh, subsets, for example, PDCs, uh, which uh, had an increase in CD81, and this correlated with the less production of interferon uh, interferon type 1. Uh, so I thought it was really cool. I mean, uh, I really won't <laughs> go smart uh, system uh, to study this. But
0: well, that's neat. So it is hormone-driven then.
1: Yeah, and he also showed that this. Uh, I mean, the his talk was longer than this, but he also showed that uh, this also changes in in, in the female cycles. Uh, you see differences in this, and he uh, hypothesizes that this increase interferon response and decreasing inflammatory response might be a preparation for um, for 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 gestation. So you want a, a woman that does a woman that is, has a fetus to not be so inflammatory, but still keep their antiviral immunity.
0: You have to be able to tolerate the parasite,
1: right? Yeah, indeed. Uh, so I thought that was that was really cool. I really, I, th- I really liked that that last talk. So you know, we went out uh, on a good note. I it was a great day.
0: That is it. Well, that brings us to the end of our first IUIS twenty twenty three episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Adamino Podcast to find out what we're up to at the meeting, and visit us at the Immunology Podcast booth on the exhibitor floor where you can win a gift basket. Check back here tomorrow for another episode recapping day two of the meeting. See you then.